0: Tonight's reading is 2 Corinthians 6, verses 3 to 7, verse 1. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path, so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commit ourselves in every way. In great endurance, in troubles, in hardship and distress, in beatings, imprisonment and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful and not always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and now open wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but, we are, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteous and wicked have in common? Or what do fellowship and light have in darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belay? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God.
1: Dave, thanks so much uh, for reading for us. Uh, Before I speak, let's, uh, let's pray. My Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, the truth that it contains. Father, I pray that uh, you give me courage as I speak. Uh, Give us all uh, soft hearts. Help us to be attentive uh, to your still, small voice. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If somebody was to ask you uh, tonight or at some point in the week, uh, what are the marks of authentic gospel ministry? I wonder, I wonder what you would say. I mean, we'd want to say that it was straightforward, right? we want to say that gospel, authentic gospel ministries marked by, well, literally just sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus with people and then watching them fall over themselves uh, to read the Bible with us as they grow in love and knowledge of the Lord Jesus himself and watching countless lives transformed by Christ. Now, praise God, there are times when it does seem like uh, it is like that. But more often than not, I think we can testify that it's akin to this. A gospel ministry can seem uh, hard. A seed is sown, and oftentimes we don't immediately see the fruit. Good news is shared, and it's rejected. Uh, We live for Christ and find ourselves being reviled. So, what are the marks of authentic gospel ministry? As we look at uh, the life of the church here at LCBC, um, and as we look at the different areas that we serve in, what might you say are the marks of authentic gospel ministry? What does it look like? Uh, And how would we know if we're doing it right, the way that God wants us to do it? Well, as we've journeyed through... Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, Paul's been telling us and as we look at our reading tonight I want us to see a couple of things Uh, firstly what are the marks of authentic gospel ministry and secondly what threatens authentic gospel ministry so firstly the marks of authentic gospel ministry Uh, for Paul and for us the marks of authentic gospel ministry have their roots in the things that Paul's been sharing with the church in the letter so far In chapter 3, Paul told us that we're ministers of a new covenant, uh, one that's not based on the letter, uh, but on the spirit of Christ. And then in chapter 4, Paul reminded us that this ministry is a ministry of grace and uh, that we're not to tamper with the truth, but to present the truth openly and to present it clearly. And chapter 5, we were told that uh, our call is to witness as ambassadors of Christ in the world, uh, persuading others of the glory of Christ because of what God has done in and through Christ. And as we read in 521 last week, we read, uh, Who for our sake made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That Christ has paid the price, and we get Christ's righteousness. So authentic gospel ministry is rooted in great joy. That's the lens with which we're to see authentic gospel ministry. And in chapter 6, verse 2, Paul tells us that now is the day of salvation. That everyone needs to make a decision as to who Christ is today, before we die. To decide if they're trusting in Christ now or not. And that's the lens that we need to look through to determine if our ministry bears the marks of authentic gospel ministry. And they're rooted in the truth that God has made a reconciliation between God and man possible, possible uh, in the atoning death of his only son. So authentic gospel ministry is done from a position of really resounding and great joy in our hearts. And what I want to do is just briefly lift out three marks of authentic gospel ministry. Uh, firstly, that it involves suffering. Secondly, that it's rooted in the power of God. And thirdly, its content is Christ. Take a look with me at what Paul says in verses 4b and 5, and then at verses 8 and 10. So he says this of his own ministry. In great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distress, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. And then he goes on. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten and not yet killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. Paul tells us uh, that these he tells us these things to alert us to the fact that ministry authentic gospel ministry will be hard. It will result in hardships. He's not telling us this to sadden us, but he's telling us that we might have our eyes open so that we won't be tempted to give in. And the reason it's hard is not because the message in any way is defective. It's the most wonderful news imaginable. But it's hard for at least a couple of reasons, inward reasons and outward reasons. Outwardly, because the Bible tells us that no one is searching after God. Everyone's looking to some thing to give them ultimate meaning in their lives, and they live for that. Oftentimes good things, but those good things get lifted up to be ultimate things. Things that the Bible calls idols. That can be children, it can be work, relationships, political calls, or even our health. And to lift people's affections from those idols onto God is hard. In fact, it requires a work, a job of work that only God can do. And people resist, they don't like having their idols exposed, however gently it's done. So that's outwardly, and inwardly, uh, to be an ambassador for Christ, to tell people of the work that God has done through Christ, to rescue them from eternal judgment, and to tell them that they need to make a decision now, well, no matter how gently that's done, it will cause suffering. The anguish of people distancing themselves from us, being branded as intolerant at the school gate or at the toddler group, in the office, or even inside our own families, it's also hard because it requires patience. And Paul said that in verse four, didn't he? Great endurance is what's required. Authentic gospel ministry is faithful and it's steady. It looks like faithfully serving on the crash, unglamorous work that enables parents to hear the good news of the gospel. It looks like helping Pete Shaw uh, keep up the, keep the building in good repair, unglamorous work. That means that, as a church, we can host services and guest events and tell people about Jesus. It looks like looking for opportunities to invite friends and neighbours to guest events and not being afraid of them, saying no. But we do need to exercise care. Our suffering mustn't be because we're being foolish, unkind, or insensitive. There's a balance to be struck in being deliberate and, at the same time, being gentle. Urgent in our appeal, but wise in how we do it. Secondly, authentic gospel ministry is rooted in the power of God. Uh, Take a look with me at verses 6b and 7a. Paul writes, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God. Uh, In his gospel, John tells us of the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. Uh, At dinner, he told them that he would send another advocate, the Holy Spirit, who guides us in all truth, the third member of the Trinity, who dwells in the hearts of all believers. And the key thing he does in our hearts now is to make the truth about Jesus and what it means to burn more and more brightly in our hearts, to make it a lived reality. The Holy Spirit reveals to us both elements of the gospel. Uh, He shows us Uh, more and more of the love that God the Father has for us. And at the same time, he reveals to us just how rebellious we are. He reveals both of those things at the very same time, how much we're loved and how much we rebel. And as we can see those two things, our hearts are filled with joy. And the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts as we dwell on those truths. So as we go into the world as Christ's ambassadors with the message of reconciliation, it's motivated only by love because we know the joy of God's love being drawn from darkness to light, move from death to life. We know that. And we want other people to know that too, for them to know that they need only turn and receive that gift. And as we speak, we speak truthfully. Uh, The sense of what is being said here is that uh, we don't speak words of flattery or only present part of the gospel. No, Paul speaks truthfully to warn against the judgment that's coming for those who don't believe. But at the same time, he speaks fully of the love of God and the offer that God holds out of life eternal and life as a child of God. Because salvation is the work of God, uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation And as we speak of the work of God in Christ, as we speak of the love of God and warn of the judgment that's to come, the power of God to save is being unleashed around the world. Paul holds both out, love and truth. I wonder what about us? um, Do we tend to shy away from one end of that or the other when we speak of Christ? So authentic gospel ministry is rooted and marked by uh, the power of God. And thirdly, authentic gospel ministry has its content that, as the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the content. Take a look with me uh, at verse 7. He says, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Now, what are the weapons of righteousness? Uh, Paul's already told us in 521 that we stand in the righteousness of Christ because Christ Took our sins. The weapon of righteousness is the truth that we are simply sinners saved by grace. We have no righteousness of our own. All we have is the righteousness that Christ has given to us. All that we have is given to us by Christ. And it's Christ that we hold out as his ambassadors. Now, because the work of salvation is a work that's done by God, we need to be a people who pray. So the weapons we wield against the battle. Well, it's just to hold out the righteousness of God in one hand and to fill our other hand with prayer. It's an image of nothing in our hands, but utter reliance on God and the work of Christ on his righteousness. Because we have none of our own. And everything we have comes from Him. So the third mark of authentic gospel ministry is that its content is Christ. Given that, let me give us four practical tips uh, to keep us going in authentic gospel ministry that's ground this. Firstly, keep a biblical view of what success looks like. Uh, it can be tempting can 't it? just to be encouraged only by those graphs that start in the bottom left hand corner and go steadily upwards uh, to the top right uh, on whatever metric we choose to use people attending services, number on a course, giving, whatever it is. We just need to be mindful that if we find ourselves in a season where it doesn 't appear as if God is doing very much, know that he is still at work. We just need to be faithful. And leave the growth to God. Uh, Secondly, be thankful for small, unspectacular, apparently unspectacular responses to God's word. We had some recent encouragement where uh, a lady who was given a Bible here 20 years ago um, came to a meeting to investigate Christian claims and brought that Bible with her. It had been sitting on her shelf for 20 years, unused and I can imagine the person who gave that Bible thought, well, oh, we're never going to see that again. And here we are. She brought that forward and God is now using that in her life. So be thankful for small and unspectacular responses. Uh, thirdly, rejoice. Rejoice when others are experiencing gospel growth. Uh, we may be ministering in the crash, but when we see lives changed by Christ in the contact group, rejoice and celebrate. It'll encourage your own heart. To see and rejoice in God's work and also place an expectation in your heart that God will work in your ministry area. Fourthly, keep praying. Do not give up. Uh, the God we worship is one who hears prayers and answers prayers. Sometimes those answers, yes or no, come quickly, but sometimes they can take time. So be constant in prayer. Be hopeful in prayer. Keep rejoicing. In prayer. Just keep praying. And that brings us to our second point. What threatens authentic gospel ministry? Uh, Having established the marks of authentic gospel ministry, uh, Paul now tells us there is something that can threaten it. Uh, Paul goes on to tell us that we can't do gospel ministry with people who don't believe what God has said or done. We partner with those who believe what God has revealed about who he is, about who we are, who Christ is, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, together with a clear understanding of the Bible as God's word to us, revealing everything necessary for salvation. And the reason for this is because when we come together with people with different foundational beliefs, when they think different things about key matters, then it's like building a foundation on sand. When testing comes, when trial arrives, or or just with the passage of time, the building will start to move in different directions. It'll crack, it'll slip, and then it will fall. And so Paul tells us, we mustn't be yoked to unbelievers. When doing gospel ministry, we mustn't be tied to people who do not share our foundational beliefs rooted in the word of God. The image Paul uses is of two animals tethered together for a single purpose. For, for instance, to plough a field uh, or to pull a car. If the animals are different, then it just won't work. They'll have different gait, uh, they'll walk at different speeds, they'll have different strengths, uh, even different aptitudes and desires. Being unequally yoked is setting yourself up to fail. Being yoked. In gospel ministry to someone who doesn't agree on the heart of the gospel, that's something that Paul says we must not do. Mustn't do. And he's clear about this. He uses four quick fire questions in verses 14 through 15 that tell us that this isn't optional. Take a look with me. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And it's the contrasts here that are really striking. When Paul thinks about being yoked or in close and obvious partnership with someone who doesn't believe the same things as him, he uses extremes to get the point across. And to each one of these questions, uh, if you like, there's a, there's a response, a loud exclamation Nothing, Know nothing, as to what these extremes have in common. Righteousness and wickedness, nothing. Light and darkness, nothing. Christ and the devil, nothing. Therefore, believer and unbeliever, nothing. He wants us to feel the force of this, And before we think that Paul's being unreasonable, or think this is just extreme or without justification, uh, take a look at what he says in 16a. Paul tells us that we shouldn't yoke ourselves to unbelievers, and he writes this. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now we shouldn't be in close and obvious partnership or yoked to unbelievers because we're the temple of the living God. Uh, to ground this, uh, we here at LCBC, we're part of that living temple. The temple of the living God, the place where God chooses to dwell by His Spirit. The place where the one who is almighty, utterly holy, utterly just, the one who is love, the one who is completely righteous, the one true living God comes by His Spirit to dwell. We as the church are a people who profess and hold true that we love God above all things. We love him and delight in the truth that's been brought uh, to us, revealed to us, that means that we have eternal life through the death of his son. Our hearts, our desires, and our affections are turned completely to Christ. But those who don't share our foundational beliefs, Paul says they're trusting in Something, whatever it is that they're trusting in, if it isn't Jesus, it's it's an idol. And the temple of the living God has no agreement with idols at all. That as a church, we mustn't be yoked to unbelievers because it risks undermining the faith of those in the church. And it also sends a confusing and misleading message to the world outside the church, for instance, by suggesting that all religions are the same and that it doesn't matter which path you take. They all lead to salvation. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. So when we work with churches, as your pastors and elders, we want to make sure that we're partnering and sharing our gospel-centered beliefs with people who share our gospel-centered beliefs. That's why we won't engage deeply uh, in close gospel partnership with a local Catholic church, for instance, because they believe a different gospel. And with major changes afoot in the Anglican church, uh, as it seeks to push through same-sex marriage, uh, we may find it harder and harder not to be able to partner with Anglican churches and other churches that choose to go that way. So there is a first-order application here as it relates to our partnering as a church with non-believers in authentic gospel ministry. That intimate relationship between God and his church. And that is the main application for this passage. But there is a secondary application. And it relates to the most intimate of human relationships, that of marriage. And who should the church marry? Believers? Unbelievers? Anyone? And it's an important topic because it's so emotive. And relatively poorly understood by Christians and non-Christians alike, partly because the world is not sure what marriage is actually for, what its purpose is. So let me spend just a few minutes unfolding uh, this. Now marriage is incredibly important uh, in the Bible. It's a gift given by God to humanity inside creation. It's a gift that's given by the one who ordained it, the one who knows what it is, and the one who knows how it's to be used. Uh, When all things were good in the Garden of Eden, there's a wedding. Then, right at the end of the book, in Revelation, the end of the Bible, uh, we're told that there's another wedding. This time, the groom is Jesus, and the bride is his church. The Bible account starts with a wedding, and it ends with a wedding. Right at the very start, God places something inside creation that points towards the ultimate completion of all things, when all things will ultimately come together. And where Paul writes in Ephesians that the union between a man and a woman uh, in marriage, he writes that this is a mystery, but it's a mystery that points to the union between Christ and his church. So marriage between a man and a woman is a dramatic display, if you like, of the union between Christ and his church. And so the purpose of marriage is to have our eyes fixed on that final day when the person we're married to now is presented to Christ as Christ's bride, men and women. And so the purpose of marriage is to help our spouse to become more and more like Christ. To help them grow in love and knowledge of Christ. And to help them lovingly see the areas of their life where they're not submitting to Christ. And to help them do that. The world tells us that uh, when we start married life that we're like this. Yeah. Yeah. The best you that there is the best hair you'll ever have the best body you'll ever have the most beautiful you'll ever be and that once you've been married it's all downhill from there but the bible says that on our wedding day we're more like this an unpolished jewel But what we will be as we journey through our married lives together, as we bump up against one another, as we take off those sharp edges and polish one another with grace, with love and with truth, we're actually being made beautiful, growing to be more like Christ and being prepared for him. When we marry someone, we see inside them inside our spouse something that Christ sees as glorious. And what we do is that we long to see that unpolished gem inside our spouse to become a stone of such beauty that we would long and be pleased to present that stone, that groom of ours, that bride of ours, to Christ on that day of that final wedding. That's the perspective of marriage and its purpose. It's not about self-actualization, it's not about having my needs met, but it's and it's not about having someone to serve me. You know, all of those things are what bridal magazines tell us. But actually it's using everything that you have, all of your resources, to bring out the beauty. Of your spouse, to bring out the Christ likeness in your spouse, to ready them for the real wedding day, the wedding of the Lamb and His church, us. So, if that's what marriage is for, who should we as pastors marry? To keep this simple, Let's assume that there are three young unmarried couples in our fellowship. And they come forward to us and they say, we're engaged. Can you marry us? What should we say? Couple one, both Christians. Couple two, Neither of them are Christians. Couple three, he's a Christian, she isn't. Who should we marry? And this is where lots of people get confused. Some say, well, you should only marry the Christians. They're Christians, just marry them. Others say, well, actually marriage is a good social thing. Doesn't matter. Marry them all. How are we to decide? How are we to decide? The question that we have to ask is are they moving, as a result of marriage, are they moving toward Christ or away from Christ? Is their relationship, as a result of the wedding, on a better footing? before God, before God, not in the eyes of the world, is their relationship on a better footing before God as a result of the wedding than it was before? Are they moving toward God or are they moving away from God? Christians, Christian man, Christian lady who want to get married, the answer I think is yes, they are looking to move closer to the Lord. two non-christians they are non-christians but they're looking to get married before they get married their relationship is what the bible calls sexually immoral fornication so they're moving from sexual sin into a blessed sexual Union, an exclusive, a covenantal commitment, and they are recognising God. They are bringing their relationship to him. They're expressing a desire, albeit small, and maybe at times the motives are confused, but they are making a step toward God. So yes, we can marry them. We can celebrate the union. They're equally yoked. What about this? What about when one says that they are a Christian and the other says that they're not? Should we marry them? The uh, problem here is that the Christian, he's saying that he loves Christ. He wants to live with Christ at the centre of his life and he wants to grow to become more and more like Christ. He's saying that he wants Christ over all things but he wants to marry a girl who doesn't know the one that he says is the most important person in his life. And if he puts marrying someone who doesn't know Christ and trust in Christ, he has marriage as an idol and he's yoked himself unequally. He's stepping away. He may say with his lips that Christ is sufficient, but then he lives in a way that reveals that he can't live without this lady. He's turning away from Christ. He's taking a step away from Christ. So that's the test. By marrying this couple, is the, is the relationship on a better footing before God than it was before, and in that case, it isn't. Are they stepping toward Christ together, no matter how falteringly, or are they stepping away from Christ? And that's why, as a pastor, I can't in good conscience marry a professing Christian with someone who's not a Christian. Uh, but aside from the theology, there's, there's all huge practical implications as well. If, if, if he marries a non-Christian, there'll be huge areas of his life that he will not be able to share with his wife. There'll never be meaningful Bible study or prayer. She'll never really understand what drives him, why he thinks the way that he does, why his priorities are the things that they are. Uh, will he attend church alone or when she thinks she wants to? How about small groups and hospitality in their house? Will that even be possible? How will he decide how much money to give for gospel work? Will she resent him serving at church or even coming twice on a Sunday? It's hard, isn't it? It's really, really hard. Either Christ will be his first love and then his wife is pushed to the margins, or his wife will become his first love. And Christ will be pushed to the margins. And in both of those situations, it's, it's, it's really, really unpleasant. If marriage is about getting him and his spouse ready for that ultimate wedding feast with Christ, how will she help him become like Christ if she doesn't know the sweetness of Christ for herself? How could she help him with that? The most likely thing to happen is that his love for Christ will lessen or it may even turn cold. Being unequally yoked is neither easy nor fun. Sometimes it happens when one of the unbelieving couple uh, come to Christ after they've been married. And the call for them, if it's safe, is for them to stay in the marriage and pray and witness to their wife or their husband. But none of this is easy, and it's pastorally very, very complex, relationally fraught, especially in a culture inside the church and outside the church where marriage is seen as an ultimate good. You know, it's an idol. But just as it's right for the church to live for and be faithful to Christ, the church being the bride of Christ, we too must be faithful to Christ as Christians. And I know this is perceived by many as hard teaching. As Paul says, uh, we have to ask God by his Holy Spirit to help us to speak to one another in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God. To be equally yoked needs us to have the power of the Holy Spirit to blaze this truth, the enormity of this truth into our hearts. For our sake, for your sake and mine, God made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Knowing that, as a lived truth in our hearts, will give us the power that we need to seek to be equally yoked, both in authentic gospel ministry but also in our own lives so that we can glorify God, not only in this life but also through all eternity. I'm sure that's going to throw up lots of questions. I'm happy to have a chat with you after the service but for now let let me just pray to close. As Paul reminds us, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness the Holy Spirit and genuine love. Let us speak to one another with truthful speech. Uh, Father, uh, thank you so much uh, for uh, these truths. Father, I pray that uh, uh, you would be at work in our hearts. Uh, help us to see uh, the good news uh, that there is uh, inside uh, the truth. Help us to see that it is you who has created Marriage that you are pointing us to that ultimate uh, wedding feast. My Father, help us to have a desire uh, to live faithfully and completely for you. May that gospel truth burn brightly in our hearts. May our eyes be fixed and our hearts captivated by you. Help us to yoke ourselves equally. And help us to be gentle and winsome in the way that we live. Help us to be faithful to you above all things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.